I was in England a couple, like a month and a half ago, um, giving a talk around the research. And one of the kind of, you know, one of the people that had brought me out there and was like super gun ho for diversity in media um, was a white woman who said, now, how do we get white people to be okay with giving up their privilege and wealth? We're really giving up their, their wealth so that other people can be at the table. And I was actually shocked by that statement because I have always seen white people in a deficit, not in a, in a surplus, right. because they have left so much value on the table from excluding and, you know, from, from the disparities along racial lines that we've seen through for over the last 500 years. And, and I said, for me, I think you're already living in a deficit. I think that you're losing so much value. So for me, I've never seen it as you having to give up anything. I've always seen it as you finally getting to see the full abundance and the full optimization of what humanity has to offer. That was Kamal Sinclair, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Kamal Sinclair, director of the Sundance Institute's New Frontier Labs program and a consultant to the Ford Foundation's Just Films program. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation. I hope you've listened to part one. So without further ado, let's get back to it. Okay, so um, coming back to the abundance, surplus thing. the surplus. Yeah, so if you're talking about the other thing that I'm, you know, and I'm not a technologist and a coder, so I do want to be humble to that. But I've talked to a lot of people <laughs> in the tech right. field, um, and you know, I think about Google's DeepMind when they did an experiment a couple of years back or last year, where they had two AIs, smart algorithms, you know, machine learning algorithms that. Um, just had to compete on a simple apple picking game. Okay. And it was so pure, like the most pure competition. How many apples right. can you pick up? And by the end of it, they were lasering each other. They were, it became like cyber warfare. Um, because whatever parameters they, they did not, they just, they just created pure, pure competition, right? Right. And so for me, that triggered the thought of this. This is not only a surplus technology if used in the right way um, and its idea of abundance, but it's also an interdependent technology, right? So you can't create a global system of millions, if not billions, of smart algorithms working in a, in a, you know, in a world where the Internet itself is distributed across every object you can look at without creating systems and a kind of rules of the game right. that allow for interdependence. So if you're talking about a global interdependent smart um, system that can sustainably create abundance, not just uh, hyper consumption, but sustainable abundance, right. then that's something that you, you have to design in collaboration, right? You can't just have pure individualism. You can't have just pure competition. Right. And so how does that disrupt, how does that disrupt the nature of capitalism, right? Um, what does that mean for uh, our global, um, you know, marketplace? And I, I was, I started to look at all these 
um, think tanks and advisory boards that were starting to pop up, and this is about two years ago, particularly one in Silicon Valley that had every major CEO from every major tech company on the board. Mm. And they were all white men, you know, and I'm looking at this going, they're making the rule, they're making the game board right Right. now. Like they're figuring out what is that interdependent system and how is it going to benefit them, right? Right. It's not a smoky back room, but it's a back room. It's a back room. Nobody's smoking. They're all like running and, (laughs) and, you know, drinking juice, you know, new juice. But yeah, that's. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy. I'm not like, there's the Illuminati. You know, like I don't feel like that at all. I'm just saying that that as a business leader, they would have to figure that out. Like they're doing what they're supposed to do um, as as their fiduciary duty as a CEO to their investors requires them to do, which is to sit and figure out what the game plan is for this. But who, who's not in that room to help them think through their own blind spots from their own bubbles. And, and Um, are they, and do they have, you know, are there just some sort of, um, you know, let's just call them, you know, panacea slash, uh, sort of top line catch alls like universal basic income, you know, right. Which again, exactly not a horrible idea on some level. I mean, obviously, you know, look at what's happened Mm -hmm. to, you know, the affordable care act and the way that we, we just gyrate in this self flagellating, you know, vortex of <laughs> whether we do or don't want to take care of our own people and can we afford it uh, while we're waging wars all over the world. But, uh, right. And so, you know, to say, oh, no, we're going to have an age of abundance. There's going to be greater wealth. And as a part of that, there'll be a lot of disruption and people losing their jobs. Um, so we're going to have, you know, universal basic income and everybody's going to have their basic needs. That's obviously a, a, there's a certain altruism or a humani- humanitarian part of that, you know, but it can also very easily feel like, you know, not let them eat cake, but let them, you know, let them have, you know, their basics because that's, right. we can just slough that off without even thinking about it because our global system you just described is so fucking incredible that it's no problem to have the, well, you know, the, I mean, the, 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 the normal citizen just have their needs met. Next, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, I, I have to tell you, okay, <laughs> Like, this is this is where I think the difference is. Um, I was at the World Economic Forum's um, China uh, event about you know th- that they have every year um, on, in June. So this is like Summer Davos, they call it, and this is la- last year. And I walked in with a um, entourage of the cultural leaders, mm-hmm. um, and this was, and I have to give a lot of credit to Nico Daswani. Um, and and his uh, kind of deep collaboration with uh, artist Lynette Walworth um, in thinking through the role of the arts and the role of culture in, you know, this kind of revered space for, right. for economists and business leaders and policymakers. And they've been working on better integrating the arts and culture into that for years. And I got the benefit of walking in when they had done so much work that it was like, welcome like i just <laughs> right was, they were happy to have it was really happy to have us there and it was i mean i was ushered right on to some major panels and one of them was um this panel on artificial intelligence and i'm literally sitting next to a yale professor one of the top roboticists and ai uh, engineers in the in china in based in hong kong um the ceo of infosystems which is one of the largest tech companies in india and the president of Baidu, the largest search Whoa. engine in China. So I'm on this panel, and I'm like, how the heck did I end up here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a dancer that did stop. Like, it's just surreal. Right. Um, and this, but I, you know, basically I, I positioned, and the reason Nico wanted me on that panel was to say, you know, in this disruption, we can't just imagine our future from the perspective of economics, policy, and business. We have to understand it from a cultural perspective. We have to understand from an identity, from a values perspective that the arts and humanities are adept at, right? So um, so I was on this panel. And there was a moment where we were talking about the, the disruption to work and the predictions of like 79 to 85% of the current work being disrupted right. by automation. And in my research... I interviewed a woman, Skawanati, who is a artist um, a techno- and a technologist. And for 20 years, she's been trying to reconcile. She's also a Mohawk Iroquois woman. Mm-hmm. So she 
for 20 years has been trying to reconcile her tech culture, which is rapid iteration, fast fail, bottom line, ROI, um, <clears throat> with her Mohawk culture, which she talked about in terms of time, space, mm-hmm. community, family, and a different way of knowledge generation and knowledge sharing. Yep. Like, you know, a kind of inspired versus analytical. Um, and she was trying to reconcile these two things for 20 years. And when she teaches indigenous youth coding and game design, she has a really hard time reconciling these two cultural, um, you know, uh, kind of opposite of the spectrum. Right. Uh, you know, thought ethos. systems or, yeah. Thought systems, yeah. And so, but she said she was, she said, I, I, she said, I don't know if this will happen because of the potential for extreme inequality and inequity that AI could bring. But if wielded in an inclusive way where we're democratizing imagination and kind of creating an inclusive way of imagining our future, she said, I imagine that the disruption of traditional work, which is very much focused on productivity and material kind of, you know, the material production, if, if the automation can take some of that off of humanity's shoulders, I imagine that the time that it allows will allow us to invest in some of these things that are of high value to my Mohawk culture. And, right. and I, I, when I continue to talk about that with different people, including, you know, um, Chris Hollenbeck from Granite Ventures, who's a venture capitalist. And I, we talked about this and everybody that I've talked to, I'm like, could we see the potential for automation allowing for a renaissance of the arts and sciences, philosophy, um, and, and, and kind of a new way of functioning in terms of community, interpersonal right. relationships, so forth, <clears throat> and well-being. I mean, ultimately, you're talking about we have uh, – the, the society that we work in right now is not designed for well-being. No, it's designed it's for productivity. It's designed for hyper-consumerism. Um, it's designed for creature comforts in some ways, but we work so hard in such <laughs> frenetic ways that – we're yeah. having mental health issues all totally. over the place. So we don't we do not understand well being in this current. No, so what if yeah. go ahead. So what if this automation it, with the right, you know, coming together value systems and uh, what if we could design for well being? And um and then I sh- I mentioned this to Chris Hollenbeck and he said, "You know what? Cuz he's right there in Silicon Valley trying to wrestle with all this stuff, right? Preacher right. work and so forth." He said, "My he said in my world there, there are only two things. You work to make money or you have time off to enjoy leisure. He said, those are the only two values that I understand, working for money or time for leisure. He said, the only people I know that work really, really hard for no money are artists. <laughs> <laughs> he said, they have this, there's something in what they do that they feel this fulfillment. Right. And he said, maybe that's the currency of the future. That maybe. sounds good. What she was talking about, this idea of what if we are investing in a different, and, and it was like an aha moment for him. And I was, it was surprised because I've been an artist my whole life. I've always right. understood that currency. It's right. been, it's driven me. And that, and also the stuff around social justice, which is another way that is, creates a fulfilling currency within my experience. So, so there is, and you know, again, just putting the pin in the cynic for a second. Um, cause there's definitely a whole cynical side of all this right. that we could unpack. Um, but you know, I, so on this panel, I mentioned this and I told them about this idea. Um, and I had a response from the president of Baidu. He said, well, we're really glad that the cultural leaders are here because when there's not enough work for everyone, we'll need film and gaming to keep them busy. Right. And everybody laughed. And to me, that's a dystopic, you know, a dystopic, right. you know, uh, view of how we're going to be using our time and kind of plug us into the matrix and keep us busy. Um, but the the CEO of the info system of Info Systems, he said, "Look, I have two hundred fifty thousand employees. I've already antiquated eleven percent of those jobs. But instead of firing them, I put them in imagination department where they're imagining their future." Right. So I do see leaders like him, and I don't know all of his politics and all. Um, you know, I, I can't kind of co-sign on everything, but I have to say that that to me was an important 
model of leadership as we try to navigate through this. How do we, how do we not be a, like a Robert Moses and be very prescriptive about, you know, what everybody should do and kind of push everybody into these pre prescribed boxes that right. the people at the top are designing. How do we mine the potential of humanity that has been quite frankly, very latent in these, you know, consumer only. And so I, I went to Stanford last week and I met with um, an engineer in the, who's also in the design school and the design school at Stanford is where design thinking and human centered design sprung right. from, right? IDEO, the whole thing. And I was speaking to him about, I said, look, what, there's, there's design right now. We understand design for profit, right? As the low hanging fruit on, on a, on the capitalist side, on social justice, in social justice circles, the low hanging fruit is designing for justice. Like just making sure facial recognition technology and DNA profiling doesn't over index black and Latino men. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like just simple stuff, right? Um, that, that's the lowest hanging fruit of what we're trying to achieve. The next level up, I think, in the on, in commerce is this idea of human-centered design, where you center the consumer as a cohesive whole person and try to design for the cohesive whole person, but it's still framed as a consumer, right? So it's still the end goal is feeding the kind of need consumption, the consumption machine, right? Mm -hmm. Where the next rung up on the social justice side is designing for well-being, where you're looking at an ecosystem of mental health, physical health, you know, community education, like all these things to try to create a sense of well-being for somebody. And they're not, they're not, they're not fo they're not positioned as a consumer they're positioned as a citizen or they're positioned as you know a, right. a human in in the, in the ecosystem of humanity but where i think these two sides and i i said this at facebook last week i gave a talk at facebook headquarters and i told this to an entire group of you know um engineers and designers i said where i think these two things can come together is in designing for prosperity because if you think about the term prosperity it's not just wealth. It's not just abundance. Prosperity has well-being, beauty, um, mental health. All of those things are designed into prosperity. You're, you have the things that you need as a creature on this planet to survive in comfort, but you also have um, the things that feed you mentally, emotionally, in terms of family, in terms of society, right. social and social, emotional, and, you know, in some, some people's definitions, spiritually. So if, if we're trying to design for prosperity, there might be a chance of bringing together some of the conflicting things that Skawanati was trying to wrestle with as a Mohawk technologist. Um, I, okay. just, I, I wonder about, you know, like whether or not we're going to, even if we can achieve the best possible outcome along these lines, whether we're going to, in a sense, even know how to enjoy it or or utilize it, you know, because, <laughs> you know, while all that, while all of that is those battle lines or those potential paths are laid out there for us at the same time, day in and day out, our, the, our existence, you know, as it relates to technology and the pace of life and the rate of change is kind of going in the opposite direction um, in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I know people, so many friends who, you know, they can't read like they used to, their attention spans, you know, they're, you know, Heidegger, his, his Nazi sympathies notwithstanding, had this term enframed, you know, which is like if the values of technology become the values of everything around you and you just don't even think about your processing stuff through efficiency and speed and ease of use. Right. And, and so those, those trends are so pervasive. Uh, but they're so pervasive and there's a huge backlash on them. And it is. So, there is. No, you're right. You're right. But I mean, but, I, I can't tell you how many of my friends have moved to Hawaii in the last year. Just like, fuck. Right. <laughs> no, no. Mainland. But that's, like, that's, that's, a, uh, that's certainly obviously not a, not a scalable solution. I mean, no, I'm no, with you. That's why, that's why we're seeing, you know, but, every, every, but, every, every fifth ad on Instagram is for calm. You know, I'm like, okay, right. my phone's we're, telling we're me I need to do space. something. So I'm not saying that there's not... It's not but, up in the air, but... Uh, well, I mean, I have... And I again, I'm not trying to be the optimist here because I think all this needs to be interrogated rigorously. But um, I, I, <laughs> I had a experience at Stanford um, last week where I had a series of meetings throughout the entire day. And my first meeting felt very dystopic. I was speaking with somebody who was a very powerful person. 
in media and technology that had very, uh, oh God, just tangible blind spots. Like I, I was shocked. I was actually jaw dropped that this person consults the CEOs of like major tech companies and did not know right. some of the things. Like, I mean, he was so deep in the Silicon Valley bubble that I was, I was yeah. like, it's, it should be illegal for you to be consulting people. <laughs> you know what I mean? right. It should be illegal um, because you have no context, you know? Right. And then, uh, and then as, as my meetings evolved by the end of the day, when I met with Nareesh from the d- design school, who's a mechanical engineer, I was like, oh, my God, thank God you exist. Right. <laughs> I was like, you get it. And one of the things that he talked about was the deviant geek side of Silicon Valley that is not in the – it's not publicized. It's not talked about. We only see the Mark Zuckerbergs and the CEOs and the right. Peter Thiels. But he talked about the deviant geek culture there and that they don't care about hypercapitalism, hyperconsumerism, and all these kinds of things. They really care about designing for beauty mm-hmm. and designing for well-being. And so – we he started to show me and talk about all these little places where the deviant geeks are gathering and 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 we know that there's a big tech won't build it movement we know that all these coders left um facebook and amazon and google and started the humane technology center because they were you know standing up against um things like addictive design right um and so there's an ex- there's a whistleblowing happening right now right. about the great technocratic, you know, dem- democratic abundance model that's happening from even within uh, Silicon Valley. And I think, um, and I think consumers are also very dissatisfied with the results of a very narrow, you know, design that happens within that Silicon Valley bubble. And I, that's why I'm literally at Facebook last week and I'm giving a talk about design justice, design well-being and design prosperity. And I got swarmed by, by employees that were just like, they've actually asked me to come back and start consulting regularly that's cool. because they, they, these, these employees were just swarming me and like in very quiet tones all over saying, what can we do? How can we disrupt from the inside? How can Help we not us. be part of? Help us come on. <laughs> I was like. I mean, but I I, I said, it's not rocket science. I mean, the stuff is already out there. I mean, Sasha Costanza Choke, who is an MIT professor and and researcher, is one of the biggest, you know, has been a great lead voice along with the allied media projects and, um, you know, uh, the stuff that's happening within the kind of net gain uh, partnership. There, There are a lot of people that are finally catching up. And doing a much better job of it than the Senate, <laughs> right. who doesn't really know what they're talking about. No, I mean even my um, my teenagers have said things like, "God, you know, I wish I wish I grew up, you know, back in the '80s or whatever." Why? Well, nobody had cell phones. Like they literally yeah. had this almost you know this impo- you know impossible nostalgia because they didn't live it for a time with less tech. Yeah, uh, and you know the singularity. People also talked when I was out there that week. And it's connected to what we talked about with identity and narrative and the power of story as it relates to the future, which is that, you know, for the most part, we see dystopic uh, narratives around the future yeah. and the impact of technology. And it's always AI as it connects to like Terminator and and uh, and this need for like more positive stories about the future just in general and which gets connects to what we're talking about with terms of abundance and the potential for good rather than than the minority report sort of negative, scary futures. Uh, so that's, yeah. you know. And I, I, I mean, Julian uh, Cromet, who's now used to be um, in the diversity department at Google and now is at Walt Disney, We I interviewed her and one of the things she said when I, so one of the, so I'll get into some of the interventions in a second, but one of the interventions, I mean, the overall theme is you need to enge- engineer robust inclusion in the imagination of our future. Um, and we need to unlock the, the knowledge that's in that diversity of thought right. so that we can optimize these new superhuman capacities for good, right? That's the ideal. Obviously, there's a many challenges to get there, um, especially when you're pushing back against this notion that, and this is something that, <laughs> I'll get to get Julianne's comments thing in a second, but when I, I was in England a couple, like a month and a half ago, um, giving a talk around the research. And one of the kind of, you know, one of the people that had brought me out there and was like super gun ho for diversity in media 
um, was a white woman who said, now, how do we get white people to be okay with giving up their privilege and wealth? We're really giving up their, their wealth so that other people can be at the table. And I was actually shocked by that statement because I have always seen white people in a deficit, not in a, in a surplus, right. because they have left so much value on the table from excluding and, you know, from, from the disparities along racial lines that we've seen through for over the last 500 years. And, and I said, for me, I think you're already living in a deficit. I think that you're losing so much value. So for me, I've never seen it as you having to give up anything. I've always seen it as you finally getting to see the full abundance and the full optimization of what humanity has to offer. Right. And, and for her, she was like, huh. I never thought about it like that. I always thought I had to prepare myself to give something up. Well, I, I mean, I mean, I would push back a little bit and say that from a relative standpoint, it's a little bit like America's, you know, repositioning in the world, right? Is, is, is it as much about losing power as it is others rising up? So, you know, maybe, you know, I, I, that's, it's interesting that you see it that way. That's a very generous, you know, positive way to view it. But from the, from the establishment point of view, even if, you know, it's an increase, a net increase across the board, it means that their relative, you know, differentiating level of power or privilege is going to decline in that future. If you're talking about, no, she didn't talk about power. She said right. wealth. And so I think that it, there is a difference between power and wealth. And I think that, but the thing is, is I've always understood the power that corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right. Um, so let's, so when you're talking about wealth and, and, and like things and creature comforts, I mean, you're talking about like the most simple example, a theoretical example is, you know, uh, uh, a young girl in, um, a favela in Brazil or in a township in South Africa has the cure for cancer. How many white people are dying every year because she has not been able to get the education right. and the fulfilling her potential. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's on a very basic level. Like right. that's just like the most theoretical, simple theoretical yep. way in which we are injuring ourselves by excluding people that have gifts to give, right? Got it. So now let's take that to a power, a mental health, a spiritual or a kind of whole being. So I'm half white, half black. And when I was in the sixth grade, some, a black person came up to me and told me my mother was a devil. And I had to, in the sixth grade, 11 years old, knew my mother wasn't the devil. I knew she, my mother was an amazing, wonderful human being um, and who loved my father deeply, who's African-American, and, uh, and his two children that you know, she adopted when they got married, who were African-American. And I saw, you know, they've been together 45 years, and it's been way beyond jungle fever or any of those other things. I mean, they've been through hell and high water together, right. and that love is... I've never seen a partnership more... more I've never seen a better partnership, right? Right. And in fact, they set the bar too high for me, and I haven't not been able to achieve that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> another podcast. So, at, in the sixth grade, with someone coming up and telling me my mother was a devil, I had to. I I wanted to defend her and and prove that she wasn't. I started looking through the history books, and I saw slavery, genocide, colonialism, imperialism, and 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 quite frankly, some of the worst sides of capitalism. And I had a really hard time in my little small little 11 year old brain trying to figure out how to prove that my mother wasn't the devil. Right. So that set me as an artist in my late teens, early twenties on a kind of a, a quest to understand how do good people participate in atrocity? Why did the lovely 17 year old German kid become a Nazi in, in right. sound of music? You know, like yeah. I really liked him. I had a little crush on right. him. Why did he do that? You know? Um, and, and, and I, I ended up, writing a play based on Dr. DeGruy's work called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, where Dr. DeGruy is a sociologist who looks at multi-generational trauma of African-Americans. So we had four acts. We had Black Johnny, Black Mary, and looked at multi-generational trauma for those two kind of archetypes of the racial divide between black and white. And then I furthered the inquiry to look at what is the, what is the injury, what is the multi-generational trauma on white people? having been a part and complicit with the system, you know? And so I looked at, I, we created the act for white Mary and white Johnny. And 
I went all the way back to, I found a book in the New York City Public Library. This is 1998, 97, 98 or 97. And it was called The Colonial Debates. And I went, and in that colonial debate, this is pre-transatlantic slave trade. Wow. The colonies were debating whether to bring slaves here. And there were four arguments. There was spiritual arguments. It's against God. In the Bible, it says woolly-haired people are the, supposed to serve the masters. So there were two biblical arguments as to why to bring slaves and why not to bring slaves. Then there were two other arguments, and this is where it gets interesting for me. Obviously, one was an economic argument. We, this, we, need, we need the free labor right. to, to, to mine all the resources of this new land, right? Yep. But, and that one won out, right? But the other side of that debate was that if we bring a race of people and enslave them, we will always have to sleep with one eye open. So you're talking about a built-in paranoia, a psychological threat, living under the trauma of paranoia from before the Atlantic slave trade ever even happened. Wow. And in order to manage that paranoia, to manage that fear that was constructed into the birth of this nation, we've had to create increasingly more sadistic ways to control a population that we fear. Right. And so what does that do for you? So what does that do for white Johnny? What does it do for white Mary? Right. Well, in the case of white Mary, I found a book called the colonial mistress diaries. And I found diaries from white women on these plantations talking about their jealousies of the black women slaves that were sleeping with their husbands. There was, you know, the Madonna horror complex, all the kind of the things around white feminism that put them in a corset and in a Madonna on a right. pedestal place. And, and there's, there was jealousy over the mulatto kids. There was, I mean, all these things that brought out the worst. You talk, you think, you think, you know, Revenge of the Nerds, war games, and and weird science created inferiority and superiority complexes that went out of control and enacted the worst of our human nature. Imagine this system. Right. So now you have um, white Johnny, who was nursed at the same breast as black Johnny by the wet nurse, the slave wet nurse, the slave wet nurse is the mammy for that white young boy who he right. has the, these incredible strong bonds to mm -hmm. then as he as he ages he's being trained to fear the people that he saw as his intimate right uh, somebody that he had an intimate relationship to and then that paranoia I mean, some of the language that i found and how to break slaves and how to fear slaves in this research was so intense that it would definitely move you to do things like quarter the biggest black male on the plantation so that nobody ever threatens you. You know, you know what quartering is having four horses pull the limbs apart of a man in front of the entire plantation, mm. not just the slaves, but in front of the white overseers, the white children. It's a psychological terrorism that happened on everybody, right. not just the black people. Yep. So then fast forward, fast forward to Amadou Diallo, who was, um, the Haitian black man that was shot 41 times in New York City around the time that I was doing this play. And when you look at the police officers that shot that man 41 times, one of the police officers, and this is, document in Mal this is documented in Malcolm Gladwell's book, when, he, when, this, when the chaos stopped and he saw that the thing that, that Amadou Diallo had in his hand was a wallet and not a gun, right. he sat on the stoop and wept right. because he was he had to weep for his own loss of humanity. Right. He had to weep for becoming the monster. Right. And if you look at Howard Zinn's book and you look at, you know, when the first um, uh, explorers came over, particularly um, in the Caribbean, uh, uh, when they were slaughtering Tainos, he, there was a priest there that documented what was happening in like Cuba. And, in, and he said, these were normal men that now with absolute power have become, he called it a disease. They were throwing babies up in the air and macheting them in half for no reason. Mm. And he said, so that's my, my point, is that as much as we think that this privilege is so important and we don't want to give up and that we believe in the scarcity model and the zero-sum model right, and right. we think we have it all and we don't want to give it up, in reality there is a major deficit, not only in terms of the technological, scientific, and artistic um, uh, innovations that are latent within a community that's been marginalized globally, 
but also in terms of your, of the own well-being of white people right no, in positions yep. of power. No, and James Baldwin talks about these themes similarly. You know, I was just reading him a little bit, this idea of like, you know, and it's what you're saying. Th- there might be a casual perception of winning and having control, but underneath it is really um, a spiritual unhealth and and a future that's unsustainable uh, for, for white, for the white power structure. Um, and so that's, yeah, you really, wow, you really um, articulated it in a very interesting way. That's fascinating. And it makes total sense. But I don't think people think of it that way. You know, they think about holding on to what's theirs. They think about loss, insecurity, and uh, maybe aren't really thinking about the, um, yeah, the, 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 the underlying spiritual unhealth that relates from that. But, uh, yeah, you, that's, and that's you very also well got to understand in terms of this race to space and this, you know, hyper privileged billionaire, you know, like the people that are going to the dead, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Doug Rushkoff, he wrote um, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. No. Okay. So this is a professor, academic. He wrote this book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And he basically is deconstructing the mental condition of Silicon Valley, basically. He's like, you know, the people on the bus that are getting, you know, bust into Palo, Palo Alto and to Silicon Valley from the city or wherever – they are not happy. They're, you know, he talked about right. kind of the ways in which these systems are, you know, feeding into themselves, right? And creating frenetic energy, creating a lack of well-being for those that are making the code and those that are consuming the code, right? Um, so he just wrote an article that came out called The Rich, oh, I can't remember the title of it, but it's something about the rich are planning to leave us, Right. Yep. And I, I remember being at this, like I said, I was at this event that was talking about the Mars colony. And it was a bit, like I said, it was dystopic for me because I was like, oh, my God, everybody, like all the images that they had were these very utopic images with, you know, a little white girl with blonde hair on the front of it. You know, like right. it was very like it looked like a Stepford Wives utopia, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a, and for me, in my perspective, I was like. And then everybody that was in the room that was going crazy over this were very privileged. I mean, these were top Hollywood folks, top right. tech folks, and most, I would say, almost all white, if not, you know, maybe 30% Asian. And they were like, it was like a rally. They were like, yes, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to go to the Mars and we're going to, you know, escape the chaos that we've created here. You know, right. <laughs> we're going to escape climate change. We're going to escape, you know, um, the, uh, this. And, and so Doug, Doug Rushkoff wrote this article where he's been brought in to advise, you know, a lot of these hedge fund managers that are in the top 5% of wealth. And they're all in a, he was, and this is not me, and I don't know, I mean, if this is legitimate or not, so I'm not going to claim it is, but he was talking about that paranoia, that they are now, they are in that paranoid state. They're in the master's house. They're in the master's house. They're afraid of the masses. Right. They're afraid of the conditions that'll happen with the climate, with all the things that we've been doing to create abundance yep. for the wealthy now backfiring. They're afraid of the rebellion. They're afraid of, you know, immigration. They're, they're afraid of refugees, climate, climate refugees. refugees. Right. You know, so they, they're either creating bunkers right. or they're trying to go to space. And so my, my issue there is that they're missing a huge opportunity right. <laughs> to not just escape the chaos, but actually just to go to Canada. Create, it's right there. It's got a lot of empty land. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. Exactly. No, I was kidding. Um, but okay. So just moving back a little bit more, if you look at, if you look at um, value system, oh, I don't know. This is too controversial. I won't talk about this anyway. I don't yeah. know. It might be nice to have some controversy. <laughs> okay. So I think you should say whatever you want to say. All right, so there's – I'm going to take a couple steps back again. So one of the things that I recognize um, is, like like I said before, that true innovation I have found in my research comes through cross-pollination of ideas and value systems and backgrounds, right? Right. And so at the dawn of VR, uh, the second – I'm sorry, the second – like kind that of second dawn rebirth, rebirth you talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people were really struggling with documentary film, I mean, or making documentary stories in VR, and still do. And there's been a lot of um, uh, critique that a lot of the kind of initial impulses 
which were created by people that were in positions of privilege to even have a 360 camera, right. um, were kind of like safaris into poverty, safaris into black and brown right. trauma. Right. Um, this and, is what it's like to be in an African slum. Right, exactly. And although, and I know a lot of those people, their intentions were really about trying to create empathy and, mm-hmm. and all these kind of noble intentions. Yep. They still kind of fell into the pitfall of this, you know, privileged, unprivileged dynamic and, and you know, somebody in telling somebody else's story without the nuance and deep cultural understanding and, and literacy to tell it correctly. Right. Right. Um, and so one of the projects um, was a collaboration with uh, a Martu man who's an elders. The project's called Collisions and it won an Emmy um, that we supported. And it by Lynette Walworth in collaboration with Nyari Morgan. Nyari Morgan is an 80 something year old uh, elder of the Martu tribe in Australia. And he, in his youth, before pre contact with the Western world, pre contact, before he even knew white people existed, he was walking through the interior of, um, you know, of Australia and, and witnessed a British atomic test and had no context for it. Um, and so this is a story that he had never shared beyond his family. Um, he shared it with Lynette because they had been collaborating on a number of different um, art projects because uh, the Martu tribe is just incredible. They're incredible muralists and uh, collaborative paintings are just phenomenal. So she had been working with them for a while. Um, and when she, he said, I want to tell you this, or his wife said, I want to tell you, I want him to tell you his story. I think it's time for it to kind of be heard beyond mm-hmm. just this community. Right. And so they had been for years looking for a medium, like cause she's a interactive storyteller. There's a lot of different ways in which she could tell a story beyond just a traditional film. And they've been thinking about how to tell this story. And finally she brought a VR headset and it was like a North face, like drone shot over a kind of Canyon. Um, it was like looking at, and he saw that and he goes, Oh, finally, there's a medium for you white people to understand what it's like to be Martu. Mm. And essentially, this is, a, this, as we know now through DNA, this is the oldest, the oldest people on the planet, like the oldest um, lineage of people on the planet. They have 40, 000, their lineage goes 40,000 years back in that land, 800 generations. Wow. They, when they, they, they do these collaborative paintings of their land, and it matches satellite imagery. That's how well they know their land. Wow. And in their meditation, they astral project, right? So they can, in their dreams, in their meditation, they can see the earth from that kind of bird's eye view. Um, and that's Whoa. why the drone shot over the Grand Canyon triggered something for him. He said, finally, you understand. So they created this piece in collaboration around trying to help the, the non-Martu, the outside world, understand the lens on reality that they have cultivated over 40,000 years. Mm -hmm. And that was so powerful. It changed like the nature of documentary. It got an Emmy uh, that went all around the world to places of power to talk about denuclearization and indigenous land rights. And it went to the World Economic Forum, the UN. It was, you know, everywhere. Um, But what I take from that is that, and then she shared it with other indigenous um, people at different, like, you know, the chief of the Awanawa tribe in the Amazon who was at the Skull World Forum, she shared it with him, and he goes, oh, finally there's a medium for you white people to understand what it's like to be Yawanawa. Okay? <laughs> so so the chief of the Yawanawa, after seeing collisions, he looked at Lynette and said, oh, finally there's a medium for you white people to understand what it's like to be Yawanawa and what it's like to be a shaman. So they started a project called that resulted in a piece called Awavena that came out in January where... Um, you're, we're able to kind of experience the Amazon uh, taking medicines, like powerful medicines, like, you know, stuff beyond ayahuasca. Right. And what it means to give vision through the lens of the Yawanawa tribe and particularly through the first female shaman that you're basically following her story and receiving a vision from her. And again, th- what was interesting about this for me is Lynette, who's the co- collaborative artist on this, she said that scientists are just now starting to discover that we actually have more than just five senses. Mm. Um, those are our explicit senses that we can't, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I can see something that's really apparent. But that we do have up to 22 other ways of um, sensing the, re- the reality in the world around us and that 
is akin to knowing how to like how f- birds know how to flock or how right. fish know when to swim upstream. Like it's things that we don't know in an explicit way, the way that our five senses um, that we're aware of, but they're kind of su- more subtle. And she says that she's finding out through this, you know, stuff that she's doing with VR that a lot of the indigenous communities she's been speaking with are like, oh, finally, they they've never stopped cultivating those senses. Whereas we've dulled those senses within right. Western culture. And so when I, when I say blind spots, I really do mean blind spots. Literal. <laughs> we have literal blind spots. And, and the ways in which we assess reality is very simplistic, almost like kids playing with toys when we're talking about material hyperconsumerism as the top value. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're missing out on all other kinds of ways in which prosperity and well-being can be generated. And I, I feel like we've been under, for the last 500 years, we've been, you know, kind of in this frenzied obsession with expansion, with, you know, exploration, with um, productivity, with productivity. And not that, and I, 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 I appreciate those things. And I, you know, I appreciate, you know, the exploration of space now. I think I, I definitely buy into the fact that we need to know that aspect of our reality we got and that it will generate learning and it'll generate, you know, technologies and things. But I do think that we need to have balance with other value systems that haven't had the, like, like for example, when I, when I was in college, I took anthropology courses and one of the things that struck me was the difference between kind of Western, like, you know, going back 20,000 years or whatever, kind of in the Western European context, you had three months to plant, grow, harvest, and preserve your food right. for the long winter. So time and object became essential. And this is also something that Joy DeGruy talks about with axiology, that you know, the object became the top priority for the sake of your community, because if you didn't do that, everybody died, right? right. The feudal system, knighthoods, all those things developed around trying to protect the object in those hard months. Now, if you go to, I studied one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa and their transition into agricultural um, kind of sedentary, you know, more sedentary life. And it was a painful transition because in that culture, the more you had, the poorer you are. Right. Right. And so if you get some, there was a, there was a, a, a knowledge and a belief and a faith that the next place they were moving to would provide everything that was needed to survive, right? right? And it wasn't the same kind of climate. It totally wasn't at different. all this. Yeah, totally you're not different. hoarding. It's not about ownership. Yeah, yeah all, all those, those, those those value systems. So you're talking about some very evolutionary kind of value systems that were not moral. They were survival. They were like, you know, I need people to hunt or gather with, and right. the thing is not important, but the other people are important, versus I need a system, even though people are important, in order to keep my people alive, I need a system that protects the object. And so if you're talking about a, you know, what we've seen over the last 500 years of a very long stint of humanity's development, that idea of protecting the object has been the, the kind of driving value system. But the problem is that it's maintained its, for, its, its um, kind of frenzied, you know, it, it's become to the point of, of no returns, right? right. I believe. Yeah. Um, and I think balancing that with other ways in which we understand what it means to survive as a, as a people can help us to balance what we have achieved in this time in a, in a better way. And I, anyway, I'm going to just get off the soapbox, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. No, well, you know, maybe on the best case scenario, that, that age of abundance would allow everyone's tight grip on the object, as you say it, to release because the stakes change and... I mean that that's a, that's easier said than done for yeah. for the culture for climate change for everything else that's going on with respect to the species but think, surviving but I think it's you know it's related to what you're talking about. And I think again I think going back to the storytelling because I think going back to what Julianne Cromit said that when I interviewed her from Walt Disney she said that we she said 30 years ago we were telling stories of the future that felt hopeful exciting something that we wanted to participate in and right now we don't know where we're going and everybody's very fearful of that future. And therefore there's this retreat into 
make America great again or going back to what we knew or what it used to be like. And also a kind of a warped romanticism of something that really never existed because right. it's a narrative we're telling ourselves about the past that really didn't even exist back then. Um, Coupled with that, dystopic narratives about the future. So the past yeah. was better than it really was and the future's scary and not going to be good. You know, exactly. It's a double whammy. And so I do think that narratives that help us to broaden our perspective on where we could go, not to create utopic narratives. I don't believe in that. I think that utopia will never exist. I think we're always going to be human and have things that we struggle with. But I do think that we can see an advancing civilization and we can improve. Um, but we're always going to have challenges. I'm, I'm not somebody that believes utopias. Right. You know, let's do utopia. So, but I do think that there's a, the more voices that get to participate in creating stories around this, the more we can find those Nyari Morgans, those 85-year-old men in the outback in Australia that have something to tell us about stewardship of the land that, and, and a relationship to, and a lens on reality. That's the thing. I mean, you think about quantum physics or astrophysics. I mean, we're talking about ways in which we understand reality on these very different levels, right? There's, di there's, a, there's a very different reality happening at a quantum level in my body and I'm a part of a very different reality if you're thinking from an astrophysics or a macro um, lens, we have that also between the different uh, cultural groups. I believe that everybody has evolved with some deep learning that, like I said, I, I would never have understood what Nyari Morgan could bring to the discourse through virtual reality. Right. It was only because... You know, he had, you know, so I'm just saying, like, I really do believe that there's versions of, I mean, like, one of the things I love about VR is it can put you in the eyes of a mosquito. It can make you a nano uh, molecule. Uh, it can, you know, make you bigger than the earth and help you understand. These are all, this is all reality. This is not fiction. Right. All these things exist simultaneously in these layered realities. Well, that is also happening in our cultural lenses. Right. And we don't understand, we will never understand the full reality of what it means to be human until we start to let other voices share with us what their lens on reality is. That, that, feels, like, that feels like a great sum, summation, final comment. <laughs> we okay. got, <laughs> Sounds so, good. Kamal, thank you so much. Uh, that was fantastic. I so appreciate uh, you being on the show and, and sharing your point of view. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this incredible roster of thinkers. Oh, from your lips to God's ears. We'll see. All awesome. Right. Thanks, Kamal. Enjoy the nice rest of your staycation. You. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> My thanks again to Kamal Sinclair. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.